Okay, you guys, welcome back to Let's Be Real. This is so fun. This might be the, I'm trying to think of, is this the first time? This might be the first time that I have encountered some people that I respect as authors and leaders. And our team just reached out and said, hey, you guys, you don't know who we are, but would you want to come on the show? So I am super excited to welcome David Brendel and Ryan Seltzer to the show. Thanks for being here, you guys. Did I say that right? Is it Steltzer? It's Stelzer. I wish it was Seltzer. That way Stelzer. I wouldn't have to work because I have the royalty payments, but Stelzer is fine. <laughs> Stelzer. I know. I was like, I definitely said Seltzer. So um, awesome. Well, Ryan and David, thank you guys for joining us today. I'm really looking forward to our conversation. Uh, little feedback. I'm going to ask you guys to fill us in, but um, I know Ryan and David as the authors of Think, Talk, Create. Um, I was immediately taken by the book because of their engagement with some maybe fundamental ideas about uh, what it means to flourish in your work as human beings. So like, of course, I love that stuff. But I would love to hear, can you guys just give us a little background on each of you, just your story in two minutes or less that has brought you to today's call? That'd be awesome. Uh, so yeah, I'm Ryan, and I, I went to graduate school with every intent of staying in academia, and wound up um, taking a fellowship in DC. I worked at the White House for a couple of years in performance. That was sort of my first introduction to performance improvement and performance optimization. Mm-hmm. Um, left DC, went into consulting, and read an article in The Economist that said business leaders should benefit from studying great writers. Referenced in the article was this guy, this this strange guy named David Brendel, who happened to be in Boston. I was living in Boston at the time, and I thought, hey, you know what, I'll send him a, I'll send him a note, a cold email, and maybe we can um, meet up or connect and grab coffee. And two hours later, we had a company sketched out on paper. So it was one of wow. those surreal moments. Yeah. Oh my gosh, I love I didn't know that about you guys and I love I mean this is totally a side note but the power of being confident about networking, being confident about just reaching out to people. No wonder we're here on the show. That's the that's y'all's origin story. So I love that. Ryan, what were you studying in graduate school? I was studying philosophy actually. I had every I was okay. I was an ethicist. I wanted to study um, social and political ethics in particular. So it was how can we apply ethics to everyday life, government decisions, business decisions, public decisions. Um, <laughs> it was all around the idea of ethics. Okay, and you were thinking I'll just teach this, and then instead you actually have to do it. I was always well. That's interesting because I I was always interested in applied philosophy, which is sort mm-hmm. of a, an oxymoron. And in the fields of philosophy, ethics is really one of the one of the applied philosophies. So I thought this is the way I could apply it. And then I realized, well, actually, I can apply it. And mm. so I just I went into the quote unquote real world and um, have not gone back since. Oh, that's awesome. Thank you, Ryan. David. Yeah. <clears throat> well, building on that, uh, I've also been interested in philosophy for years and woven back and forth between philosophy and neuroscience and medicine and psychiatry and executive coaching. And so superficially, it looks like Ryan and I have had um, very distinctive types of professional backgrounds. Ryan in government and the uh, White House and in in management consulting in a large financial institution. And I studied philosophy and then went to medical school and psychiatry. But uh, philosophy was the common ground and even going deeper on that, I think was really about human values about how people connect with one another um, through dialogue and uh, uh, establish a shared sense of, um, of vision and, and mission. Mm-hmm. I think that's really where we connected the most and also having worked in so many different 
types of uh, in professional environments, hospitals, big banks, governments, other kinds of, you know, variety of corporate settings and coaching work. We just saw some commonalities across workplaces as they become more and more numbers focused and dehumanized. And so we, we sort of looked at our professional experience and even more importantly, our shared values, ethical and even moral values about how people should talk to each other and treat each other. And how, how does that apply in the business world? And can you do well by doing good? And mm. uh, the, the book kind of uh, arose out of that shared sense of, uh, of values. Uh, mm. And then we looked at a lot of our own experience in, in work and also at a lot of the emerging research on how humanized workplaces actually are yeah. more uh, productive. It's not just about higher quality of life and doing the right thing. Those things are important. But uh, for many companies, maybe not all in the short run, but for most companies, and certainly in the long in the long run, they do better from a financial perspective as well. Hmm. People treat each other well. I love I love what you're touching on, David. I I feel all of these connection points that you guys must have had. I'm trying to imagine that moment when you all came together and realized. It sounds to me like you're both fundamentally pragmatic. Like you have these lofty educations in all of these areas, but the fundamental practicalities of. But what does it really feel like on a Tuesday afternoon? What does it really feel like to be a person who works? And I'm curious in that when you guys had that first initial meeting, what were some of those shared passions, you know, that you feel like came out of that time, Ryan? Maybe I'll defer back to you because you obviously pursue that connection? I don't know what you thought you were going to get into when you had that first meeting, but what were a couple of those places that were those shared passions? Well, when we when we met and we grabbed coffee at us, uh, the, the punchline here is that the place where we grabbed coffee is actually now a parking garage. Um, <laughs> it, it was demolished and became a place to park your car. But where it was that historic site. and dirty now. Then that's not yeah, <laughs> that's true. Um, I think they're going to put a plaque up, maybe where or in the parking spot, right where our table was. Um, and you mean you two are going to put up a plaque, right? <laughs> exactly. Yes, of course. We'll go get some so eight eight and a half by eleven sheet of paper and tape it there. Um, now, when when we connected, my intention going in was just picking his brain because you know David's a brilliant guy. He's referenced in the Economist, for God's sake, you know. And I thought, okay, this is somebody that I can learn from and uh, just get a few tidbits of information. And David was the one, perhaps he, re he regrets this now, but he was the one who was interested in actually potentially working together. And, you know, he had suggested, um, you know, ways in which we could think about applying this in, in a business setting. And to your point, I think ultimately what we should, our, our connection was over, well, we thought the same about um, some of the great books that we had both read and some of the um, thinkers that we had both admired, but also just this idea that the ideas, the, 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 background that we had is it should not be restricted to the academy alone mm. and sort of, you know, you're writing papers in graduate school and you're maybe going to have one reader, like the professor might read it. <laughs> that's your, that, that's the extent of it. Or if you go to a conference, you might have three readers. Um, but now when we write articles, you know, you have tens of thousands of readers. So it's like, mm. how do you get these ideas into a wider audience? How do you translate them? And so we just had a very similar approach and, and, um, uh, a mindset around, okay, these ideas need to be shared more widely. And also how do we go about sharing them widely? Um, mm. And so David and I just, we, we connected mm. instantaneously and I was always in awe of David. And so uh, I still, and still am to so the, the magic has, is not gone. 
<laughs> the magic is not gone, David. That's good news. Um, what about you? What did you see in Ryan? I, I just saw, you know, great, great enthusiasm and um, uh, brilliance and, a, and, uh, and also a really deep sense of values and, 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 and doing the right thing. Mm. Uh, and I think we also agreed that we had both worked in very um, stressful um, professional environments at mm. times. And I think we were pretty open with each other about the uh, the quality of life hits that we had taken in some of those environments. Uh, and we, we we really wanted to have some fun. And I, I think we could tell in that, that, that first conversation, you know, you always think it's going to go on for 45 to 60 minutes and you know maybe if it's not going well you can slip out after a half hour by faking uh looking at your phone and seeing a text and having a run but this uh, our conversation <laughs> went on long enough that we really had to switch to decaf um and uh i think that's that's really relevant to this starting the, the consulting company which ryan had already named strategy of mind and i, I like that yeah. Uh, we wanted to make sure that the work environment between the two of us and, and anybody else that would come and join us was really bonded and, and human. And that was some of um, what we write about in the book kind of came out of that shared experience we had together, starting in that in that Starbucks that yeah. we, we felt best and most creative and productive when we were enjoying each other, time with each other. Okay, so I'm going to ask an obvious question. That's a big one, but I trust that you guys can find a way to make this small. How in the world did we get here? How did we get to a dehumanized workplace? And you guys tell some different stories that honestly, I was like, wow, like just shocking stories of the dehumanization of the workplace. Um, and I know that there's a lot of historical background, but if you could just talk to us a little bit about how we got here and then kind of your proposal around this different AI and what that looks like in the way that we do our work. Well, I think there are many different historical um, um, timeframes that you can look at. And it really is probably uh, from time immemorial that people have used and mistreated each other. We can go back to slavery in many mm -hmm. different eras, including in our own countries but even you know, back centuries and in many different cultures. However, in the, in more, if we look in more recent times, recent years to decades, a time range that you know, maybe is more palpable to all of us when we go to work, we, uh, we discussed this a bit in, uh, in the middle of uh, the book about the, uh, the switch um, to uh, a, a, a very strong focus or almost an exclusive focus on shareholder value and return mm. on investment. A lot of that coming mm. out of um, work at Harvard Business School and the very wide adoption of the idea that it, the corporate responsibility is not to people or to multiple stakeholders or to the community, but a, a very Harvard Business School focused, um, grounded, supposedly rigorous uh, idea that the, um, the fiduciary responsibility of people running companies, including the CEO, is uh, is return on investment. Mm. Uh, and then that becomes at any cost, at any human cost. Uh, and then the drive toward very performance-based, metrics-driven um, workspaces, coupled with all the tech developments that allowed for that to be done um, easily and rigorously, <clears throat> um, leaves us, led us to where we are now. 
Mm. And what a deceptive mindset, right? I mean, it's 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 deceptively easy to be like, of course, of course, that's what this is about. And yet there seems to be all of these ways that that creeps in. I mean, that's crept into every environment that I've been in from corporate to ministry to entrepreneurship. That is a very strong, right? Like shared, maybe American language, shared consumerist language. But tell us how you guys have seen that. Maybe you mentioned, David, that it actually isn't as effective and productive a return on investment as maybe some have believed it to be. It's become like a, the assumed way of doing things. I and mean, you hear, you know, shareholder value. It, it's it's like unquestioned. You, you're mm-hmm. not going to hear people in team meetings, you know, up, down, or across organizations saying, well, wait a second. Maybe maybe the main focus here shouldn't be on return on investment and what, what our shareholders want to see in, in, on quarterly earnings reports. Maybe. I mean, you'd be laughed out of the room or fired. Uh, so it, it's become uh, a baseline assumption. Um, by stepping out of those kind of environments and running our own um, consulting business, working more individually with clients, we were fortunate enough to be able to put ourselves in a position to question that. Mm. Ryan, you guys use this idea of active inquiry, like a different kind of AI, as sort of the basis of your shared, you know, this shared philosophy of work that you guys present in the book. Tell us a little bit about that. Like, what is it? What does that end up looking like when it is applied with your clients? Yeah, it's it's really so AI is really the, the sort of the practicum of our book, and Think Talk Create is is how AI is applied. It's how you can go about practicing AI in a, on a on a day to day basis, and so it's it's really just a three step process of sort of pausing and sort of re- recollecting yourself, um, maybe taking a few deep breaths, so a few mindful moments, but really thinking through. That's where the think comes in, you know, thinking through um, what maybe the objectives might be or um, any sort of previous history that's relevant. Um, but it's this sort of this um this slowing down in this thought process mm-hmm. first and then the talk is when we get into the skill of open-ended questions which is questions that do not have yes or no answers so if i said um uh how was your weekend that's an open-ended question that i'm asking you to elaborate further on how your weekend was whereas if i said was your weekend good you mm-hmm. could just say yes or no and that would sort of cut off your 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 response and the idea with active inquiry and what we see through organizational behavior and cognitive science is that it is a tremendously powerful tool to establish trust to find collective values and then of course ultimately this third step that we talk about which is create which is build solutions and solve problems mm-hmm. so um, it's sort of like a two heads are better than one mindset. So if we sort of stop, reflect, pause, engage in some active inquiry and dialogue with one another, and then build solutions to the challenges at hand, that's a really effective way to grow not only personally, but also at an organizational level. Mm-hmm. Okay, guys, this sounds so good, right? Like we all sit here and we're like, yes, of course. Now, why in the world is this not easy for leaders, David? Like, What's going on that would keep us from what sounds like an obvious way to yeah. work through life and problems? It's funny. It seems so simple-minded. Ask, ask open-ended questions, let people talk. Uh, the good news is we all do know how to do it, but um, stress and time pressures and you know overwhelm, uh, too many emails, too many deadlines, too many projects actually leads to cognitive breakdown. We talk a bit about mm. uh, the research in the book uh, 
uh, on how uh, cognition and planning and executing actually degrades under stress or in the context of, uh, of, of dehumanized work environments. So active inquiry is actually a very, very self-disciplined and rigorous process. Mm. And a lot of what we do with our clients in consulting work is have them practice it, we'll demonstrate it, uh, and we'll have people practice conversations where the only thing you do is ask open-ended questions or make some clarifying statements and it's very powerful sometimes in just 15 or 20 minutes a client will have an insight and an action plan something they had never thought of before and sometimes the action plan is oh you know maybe i should go speak to my colleague and ask how they're doing and if they need some help with something uh, uh or maybe i should just ask them how their weekend was to try to create a nicer feeling between us so we can um, dig into a difficult project this coming week. It's very easy to forget those things uh, that we often do in our ordinary life with uh, family or friends. Uh, and, uh, and, and applying that in the workplace, it is, it is not so easy to do. So the questions can be very powerful. Are you going to get me the PowerPoint presentation by 4 o'clock is very different than how's it coming along and uh, do you have any questions or could you use it? Yeah. No. Uh, very, very different type of conversation that brings stress down and it increases cognitive performance and results. How do you, it is, it is fundamentally now, obviously, as uh, also trained as a therapist, also as a coach, it is remarkably beautiful when people are like, they come up with their own solutions and then they thank you for it. And you're like, I didn't do anything, my friend, you had it all in you. You just needed the space to do so. <laughs> right. But so of course, that's a wonderful part of our job. But it is it it feels fundamentally unproductive. Does that make sense? Like if I really want to say to my team member, will the PowerPoint be done at four? That feels productive. To actually say how was your weekend feels fundamentally unproductive. How do you help leaders in that mindset actually grow to as you call it, systems two sort of cognition where you're able to apply your energy towards active inquiry rather than just getting the next thing done? Fortunately, there's actually a lot of data that answers the question. So if you're a systems one thinker, if you're an analytical thinker, if you like numbers, there's actually a lot of evidence that suggests you might mm. want to change your approach. Um, so for the, the classic example, and the one that we give in the book is Project Aristotle at Google, which was this quest by Google's team to figure out what made a high, uh, high performing team high performing. So mm. the idea that they had the hypothesis that they put forward was that uh, performance was was centered around the idea of casting, that if we put a senior manager with a junior manager and an introvert with an extrovert, so on and so forth, then you'd, you'd be able to construct the perfect team. But what they found is, in their own words, they were dead wrong in their hypothesis. The only mm. indicator of performance was this idea of psychological safety, which mm. is a feeling of sort of, it's, it's a little bit it's like trust plus it's a little bit it's more than trust psychological safety is is this idea where you feel free to share your ideas without any sort of fear of judgment of or reprisal so mm -hmm. if you're in a meeting and your boss puts out a question you feel completely comfortable to raise your hand or just sort of speak up and say hey i have an idea and then discuss the idea and you can understand why that's 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 a good indicator of high performing environments because if you are in an office where people are not comfortable sharing their ideas, nothing is going to be created or innovated. It's going to be a very stifling environment. 
So with active inquiry, I think talk create and, and uh, we can try to cultivate this skill of, or this, this, this ability, this psychological safety, this thing that we don't necessarily always know what it is, but we've all felt it. It's, 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 you know, it's one of the things when we're doing workshops with companies, we try to get them to feel it because it's one of those things mm-hmm. where we can point to it and say, see that, that experience that you just had, that what you just felt, that's what psychological safety is. It's very difficult. It's not, it's not um, something that can be sort of looked up in the dictionary and like, oh, I know what psychological safety is. I can, I can apply it. No, it, it almost has to be experienced. And then mm-hmm. once you experience it, you get it, and then you can learn how to how to develop it and nurture it. Mm. I love that you called it trust plus. You're like it's it's trust, but it's it's something just it's even more than that, and it is and it's an experience, and that people know it when they feel it um, on both on both sides, right? So yeah, I love that. I'm curious for you guys um, specifically in the last couple of years as we've had this incredible pivot to virtual spaces. I have struggled. Uh, I will just say, like as a as a coach who loves to be present with people and read the dynamics of a room, going into virtual spaces has been difficult. How have you guys helped coach your clients to create psychological safety in a virtual environment? There are some new challenges that come with it. Pre-pandemic or now hopefully somewhat post-pandemic, we've often coached people to keep your door open. Don't, don't lock yourself in the office because you want to have allow for these chance encounters that allow for the how was your weekend and how's that project going and anything I can do to help types of questions. Um, I, I recently coached somebody that uh, to spend 15 or 20 minutes every morning door open instead of closed as it always was, answering emails with a cup of coffee just walking around the office and, and chatting and uh, he told me after a couple of months that it made a huge difference in terms of the quality of the uh, work environment and actually getting projects done because it started out as conversations about, you know, how are your kids and how was the vacation? And it turns into something about work. So people can just have a little bit of patience, you know, to your question just a little bit earlier, Nicole, if you just try this out and give it a chance for five minutes or five days or maybe a couple mm-hmm. of weeks, you do start to see, uh, the results. So the switch to virtual has been a bit more difficult because chance encounters uh, mm-hmm. uh, are not as readily available and sort of not available at all. Uh, so some of it turns into if the meeting is already happening virtually, you've got to be particularly um, focused on uh, the active inquiry uh, or go out of your way to um, ask for a phone call or a very brief video uh, discussion, not adding an hour to your calendar, but getting something uh, going, sometimes face-to-face or by phone is, can be also done well. Also, active inquiry can also be done by email, mm-hmm. uh, right? We, we, we all have had the experiencing experience of opening an email that increases our stress level and one that's just friendly and asks a nice open question that we actually do want to respond to. So uh, there are a number of workarounds, and in, in some cases, people have actually made very good use of it because it's forced people to be more careful and self-disciplined uh, and mm. not leave it to chance quite as much. Mm. Ryan, anything to add to that? No, I mean, David hit the nail on the head as always. It's it's just, there are there definitely are unique challenges. One of the questions we also hear a lot are is, um, 
what, you know, what's the future going to hold and, and are we mm-hmm. going to go back to the office and what does that look like? And the, the I think that piggybacking on what David said, the genie's out of the bottle as far as remote work is concerned. And the idea that we're going to go back to some sort of pre-pandemic mindset around nine to five rat race, being in the office, having to be present all the time um, is just not practical or realistic i don't think um Mm -hmm. not a not a fortune teller i don't know what the future will hold but it seems increasingly likely that there will be some some combination of hybrid fully remote whatever that looks like approach to work moving forward and so we have to think about the approaches that david just you know indicated that this is we're not going back to the way things work yeah, well, we'll have to keep putting our heads together and <laughs> finding good ways to help our clients, like, you know, discover that because it does create, it can be, like you said, David, I really appreciate your your thought that actually the intention required can make people better at it because it it does require intentionality. But yes, for our for our clients, for our leaders who need that help to to make those relational connections continue to work in that way. You guys, this has been helpful. Obviously, we have just barely scratched the surface of what you can find in Think, Talk, Create. And you guys are very wealth of knowledge about ways to engage kind of fundamentally different with your work. But before we before we wrap for today, I did want to ask you one more question just to address our listeners and our viewers directly. If someone, wherever they are, let's say they need to lead across, they need to lead up, um, whether it's leading their own team, what's what's one or two things that you think can make a real difference when it comes to engaging the human side of work to create flourishing? We've talked about walking around, you know, those pieces, but is there something that comes to mind or a story from your own work or life that you feel like captures the difference between this dehumanized workplace and a more flourishing and relationally safe place. David and I were doing a workshop at a uh, company in New England uh, a number of years ago, and it was a uh, uh, it was sort of an annual retreat. And the company was going through some challenges, and they had all the people seated around the room by their division. So they had the the accountants at one table, lawyers at one table, you know, all the sort of by team, sil- very siloed. And they were talking about some of the challenges they were facing. And this was a property management company. And to the to the company's credit, they actually invited the maintenance technicians and the custodial staff to the annual retreat. And they were seated, they were seated at their own table. And mm. David and I were leading a workshop. And we asked one of our favorite open-ended questions, which is, uh, what keeps you up at night? And mm. the accountants gave accounting answers. The lawyers gave, lawyer, well, any answer, legal answers, but they gave pretty much everything. Um, and then there was this um, sort of burly gentleman in the back who had a, a blue shirt on, a blue collar on with his name tag. And he stood up and he said that his pain point was loss. And we were sort of taken aback by that. And we, uh, we posed some further questions and come to find out this company managed a lot of um, uh, senior living facilities. And these custodians who were on site all day developed very close connections with the residents. And so mm-hmm. there was this one resident that would always ask this maintenance technician to come in and open a jar of pickles because she just wanted the connection and the companionship. She was alone mm-hmm. in an apartment building by herself. And he, so he'd be painting the hallway and she'd say, hey, can you come in and open the jar of pickles? And they sort of formed a friendship and they would ask questions about each other's family and, and their background. And um, inevitably she passed away and he was he was grief struck. I mean, he was just, he was just, he was overcome with, with a sense of loss. And 
this is something that all the custodians shared that they all had these similar stories of, of, of grieving some friends that they lost on the job because they were, again, there was the senior living facility. So hmm. what, that's a very, and all that sort of experience all of a sudden um, was a spark in the room and everyone else mm -hmm. started to think outside the box as far as some of those challenges and pain points and what kept them up at night. And they started to speak to these sort of shared human connections. But the short answer there is one of the most important things is that we talk about in our book, if you're somebody, what's a simple something you can do is the, the idea of agency. It's the idea mm -hmm. the William James sort of notion that in order to change the world, you first have to believe yourself capable of changing the world. So this mm -hmm. custodian had the courage and the ability to raise his hand and say that the loss was his pain point. And so one of the things that that we stress is having that that agency and belief in yourself to know that actually you are capable of making a change. This is not mm -hmm. a top-down approach exclusively. This is also a bottom-up approach. Think Talk Create mm -hmm. can be implemented by someone in the corner office and somebody that's a new analyst. So it's really that idea of you you have the ability to create positive change. Mm. Gosh, what a story. Like, I, you know, I just picture myself in the room that, like you said, the courage for someone to go first who would engage with a deeper matter of the heart rather than, you know, whatever the lawyers were saying and the analysts were saying and the engineers were saying. Um, and that person obviously is not someone with um, authority and power that's been given to them, but used their own authority and power to to shift the, the culture, it sounds like. And and did you did you see a shift in that workplace? They actually they hired grief counselors, as a matter of fact, after, wow. after our after our workshop for the custodial staff and the the feedback in the room. Was, I mean, there was a noticeable change in the energy mm. in the room and sort of the mm -hmm. conversation and how it shifted. And um, they they worked towards some ideas that were helpful to the company. And um, but, yeah, it was there was a there was a very practical change in that the custodians all of a sudden received counseling. And mm. they also created some pretty innovative solutions to some of the things they were facing. Awesome. It's a great story. David, anything to add? Yeah, I, I think building on that, um, often what we encourage people to do is get to some sort of authentic emotion uh, mm. to bring to bring into the conversation appropriately. It has to be, uh, after some period of self-reflection, it needs to be done in a regulated way. It can't be um, anger or other, um, in some ways, what some people call counterfeit emotions. It has to go deeper into something like sadness a sense of loss that that, that type of um, that type of emotion uh, I just in the previous hour was working with uh, uh, with a client who's gotten some feedback from uh, a very long-standing and trusted colleague that he's been really disrespectful demeaning devaluing uh, and he was having a very defensive response <clears throat> what we got to in the conversation is that this the uh, the anger the frustration the disrespect that he has put out there is really covering up sadness that the work relationship changed. His colleague uh, had a child, uh, is not working quite as much, is a bit more distracted, not as present for some of the uh, projects uh, that she used to be in involved with. And so what came around is instead of the continuous back and forth about anger and disrespect or not talking to each other for two weeks, uh, he's going this very afternoon and having a conversation where he says, you know, I think what's underneath all this is I'm sad that, mm. that we're not working together the way we used to. And uh, knowing what I know of um, her, not working with her directly, but hearing uh, about her for years, I, I'm, I'm predicting, in fact, I'm very confident that they'll have a, a very different type of conversation this time. And that mm. came about through active inquiry with him and, and 
going to a deeper emotion uh, that yeah. is now going to be expressed productively. Oh man, those, that is such great takeaways, Ryan. Just what you said about, you know, this can happen anywhere in the organization. Like it does not matter where you are. You're the one who can do that. And David, to name, to say, what does it look like to make an authentic emotional connection that's beyond, you know, what some might call a counterfeit emotion, beyond anger, beyond defensiveness, where might that authentic emotional connection come? And really, you know, we're, we're all on this call living proof that when that kind of environment is created in a workplace, it is ultimately not only more productive, but where we started today is just more fun. It's more fun and people flourish because of that authentic human connection. You guys, it's been delightful to have you on Let's Be Real. Thank you for your time. Um, talk, or excuse me, Think, Talk, Create is the book, you guys. You can pick it up. And Strategy of Mind is the group. If you're thinking, man, we need some help in my, in my, in my organization, you can check out Ryan and David there. Thanks, you guys. Thank you, Nicole. Thank you.